0: Well, hey guys! Happy Sunday and good morning. I want to welcome everyone who is watching this morning. Uh, whether you are in a house church with City Church or you're watching online with Res Church. Uh, We are honored that you guys would take uh, a time really to just be able to worship with us virtually and in your home and in a group type setting. Uh, Today we are kicking off a brand new series called Use It or Lose It, which is a study through the book of James. Uh, We're not going to be going in chronological order through this. Uh, but we are going to be hitting some high points, uh, really centered around the theme of faith and works, about allowing faith to uh, be able to produce works and how different scenarios in our life end up producing faith in our life. Uh, so, today, if you got your scripture, you can jump with me to James chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today to kind of kick off this series. Um, and, and I want to kind of throw out a few things to set up for, for really the context of this passage. You, you have to understand that James, when he's writing this, James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And, and so James didn't even become a follower of Jesus, as in believing Jesus was the Messiah, until after his resurrection. It literally took his brother uh, dying and rising from the dead for him to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, and then at that point James became one of the leaders in the church and, and became very, very strong and vocal uh, about the followings of teaching uh, the following and, and the teachings of Christ and allowing that to be able to produce, works in our life. And so this is his letter to the church, and James's primary audience um, is is usually more of the the Jewish religious people, and so that's kind of a little bit of the context, but he's also writing to the broad church as a whole as well. Uh, The the passage we're going to start off with is actually a a very difficult passage, and and so if you read this, it's easy to get uh, what James is saying confused with what Paul says in his letters to Galatians and Colossae and, and Ephesus. And so I want to I want to kind of throw this out there, because you can look at them, and at face value, it's easy to say that they're not saying the same thing, Uh, but if you dig deeper, they are saying the same thing. Scripture is interwoven. Scripture does not contradict itself, and and so Paul, in his writings, uh, he is addressing people who were coming from pagan worship, um, a lot of Gentiles, Greeks and Gentiles mythology, and James is really addressing uh, the religious elite, so. To speak, or people that are coming from more of a religious background, right? And and so, what Paul says, and it's very apparent, there's two things that we have to know before we dive into this text. Uh, Number one is what Paul says is that you are fully forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross. And so, before we get into this, know that you are fully forg- forgiven because of the work that Christ did on the cross. And number two is by faith alone, you are adopted as a child of God. And, and you'll see where the tension rises in just a minute. So number one, um, you were fully forgiven by the work that Christ did on the cross. You can't do it. I can't do it. He did it. And then number two, we are adopted as children of God um, by faith alone, by faith alone. And, and so, as we dive into this passage and really this entire book, uh, it, the best way to kind of describe it is like looking in a mirror and every time you look in the mirror it doesn't matter how much makeup you put on or how well for us guys we may shave our face or we may pluck our eyebrows or whatever it is that we want to do to look good to give that good outward expression no matter how many times we do that when we look in the mirror and we examine ourselves we're always going to find something wrong with us and what I'll love about uh, the book of James, James' letter to the church, is every time you read it, it really just hits your heart, and it allows you to go back in front of the mirror called the gospel, and the gospel to really just uh, examine your life and pull some stuff out of your life that Jesus wants to to work on. Uh, Matt Chandler, uh, this particular passage in James 2, Matt Chandler says this about this, while faith alone saves us, it is a faith of a certain kind. It is a faith that produces works works which save us. The works do not save us, but a faith without works will only deceive us and not lead us into the fullness of God. And so what James is about to talk about is faith without works is dead. Meaning if your faith does not produce works in your life, it's dead. Let me put it this way. If you don't use the faith that God has given you, your faith is dead. You're either going to use it or you're going to lose it. And so with that said, let's dive into James chapter 2, picking up in verses 14 through 17. James writes, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can the faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the, needed, uh, the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So faith without works is dead. That's essentially, essentially what James is saying is what good is your faith? What good is your faith if you do nothing with it? What good is your faith if, if you've got a bunch of faith, you've got a bunch of knowledge, you've got a bunch of belief in God, but it never uh, transpires into some kind of action in doing something for the kingdom of God? You've probably heard this phrase before, put your money where your mouth is, right? Put your money where your mouth is, Uh, meaning that uh, you can talk a big game, you can talk a whole lot of things, but if you don't actually invest into the thing that you're talking about or or do the thing that you're talking about, you're just blowing a bunch of smoke up people's ears that's going to amount to absolutely nothing. And so James is using this example of the poor, uh, of people that are oppressed, of people that are that are homeless in our context, people that are maybe strung out with addictions. And he's saying, if these people come up to you and you say, peace be with you in the name of Jesus Christ, um, and you do nothing to follow up with a practical action, what good is your faith? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 25, he actually says something very similar to this. He says, and the king will answer them, and he's talking about a a parable. He's talking about a parable about how these people ended up taking care of his children and then other people ended up not taking care of his children. And so it's a rebuke that Jesus has given. And in this parable, he says, the king will answer, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you also did to me. And then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, and enter into the fire, departed for the devil and the angels. Verse 42, for I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And so Jesus is teaching. He's saying, if, if you're looking for, for areas, if you're looking for ways to be able to express your faith and, and God gives you these opportunities around and you do nothing, then where is your faith? And how often in our lives do we get wrapped up in our own self? Do we get wrapped up in our own mind? Do we think that it's all about our agenda and our plan? And God puts these pivotal opportunities, these pivotal moments in front of us for us to be able to make a difference for the kingdom of God, to be able to meet a practical need, to be able to serve the people of God or to be able to serve people created in the Imago day, the image of God, and we just turn our back to them. We just let them walk by us, and we do absolutely nothing. So James is saying, if you've got a bunch of faith and you're doing nothing, then what good is it actually for right here? What, what good is it actually for? See, see, here's the thing. As we experience more of the grace and the mercy of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, it should transform our heart to where we can love his creation and serve his creation even more so. And so people, people that, that come up and they say, man, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I just hate people. I want nothing to do with people. Are you really a Christian? Are you really a Christian? Because the gospel, the love that Christ has done inside of you should transpire and transform your heart to where the love for people around you grows even more. And, and, and he's, he's talking about, I think that this is very important because in our Western American culture, I mean, we love everything. We love our wife and we love our cars and we love French fries, right? And Chick-fil-A, except for on Sunday. We, we love everything. Everything. And what James is talking about, he's not talking about an emotional love that is needed, but he's talking about a love that is in action, a love that is a verb, a love that is responding to a need, a love that is doing something on behalf of someone to where we are sacrificing to see that person do better. And so he's saying your faith without works is absolutely nothing. Continuing on in verse 18, he says, And then he goes into two examples. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled and says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way? And and so James is given this argument, right? He's given this argument, and he's saying, faith without works is dead. And and then it's kind of like this antagonizing person that ends up coming into the scene, right? And and, and the antagonizing person says it like this, you you know, um, you have faith but I have works. You have faith, I, I have works. And so my faith is all my works. And then the other person is saying, all you have is, is faith right here. And so there's, there's really these two scenarios that start to play out. And James basically is like, hey, you've got faith, then, then prove it. The, the first person right here that we see that starts to play out, this antagonizing person, is a person who has faith without works. It's a person who has deep theological understanding, a person who understands their doctrine, a person who can probably even argue Scripture apologetically, a person who understands the catechisms and understands the doctrinal stances and the creeds and the church history and all that theology. But even all of that understanding does not produce an act of love of serving people. I'm sure you guys are... um, on some form of social media, right? Many of you may even be watching on Facebook or YouTube right now. How many times have we seen internet trolls in the name of God come up there trying to defend the faith, right? I I know for me personally, I've had to deal with internet trolls. It's like you post something giving glory to God and excited about what God is doing. And then, you know, a day later or half a day later, someone comes in with some deep theological comment and they try to correct you, or they try to prove you wrong, or they, they really, honestly, they just take scripture completely out of context and use it to, to bend their argument and to make you look foolish and stuff. You know what I do to those people? Delete. Like, seriously, I delete the comments. Why? Because that's a person who has faith without works. That's a person, and, and we all know them. They're so spiritual that they're no earthly good. They're so caught up in the third heaven and seeing angels and, and experiencing, and all that stuff is good. Like, I'm all about that stuff. But if that does not transpire into action in our life, then what is the point of it? And, and what James says, like, you've got all this faith, you know all this doctrine, that's awesome. That's awesome. So do the demons. And and here's something I think we need to be reminded. The demons have got better theology than we do here on this earth. Why? Because they were with Christ. They were with God in heaven. They were literally students of God until they they rebelled against God and left with Satan, left with Lucifer to come down and rule this earth. And and so the the demons have got better theology and yet, they still have fleed from God. They've still rebelled from God. They are still causing destruction from God. Look, I'm, I'm all about having those deep theological understandings. I think it's needed. I think that uh, we have a generation right now who is biblically illiterate, and we need to get back to the simplicity of the Scripture and the simplicity of the Gospel But if it does not produce a transformation in our heart, then what is the point? It's like like you end up getting a million dollars, right? You get a million dollars or let's say even a billion dollars and you become so selfish with this good news that you've got that you don't want to help anyone out there. You just say, this is all mine. I'm going to hold on to this. I'm not going to let anybody take this from me. I mean, the gospel is like this. It's a free gift that God has given to us by faith alone, by faith in what Christ did on the cross. And how selfish of it is for us to simply hold on to this good news and to not put it into action, to not tell the world about it. And that's what James is getting at right here. Your faith has to produce works that end up giving glory and honor To God, or else what's the point? And and then he goes into two examples. He talks about Abraham, Father Abraham. He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Some of y'all are singing this right now if you grew up in kids' church and Sunday school and have a church background. And if not, then you probably don't know what I'm talking about and you probably think I'm a lunatic, and that's completely okay too. But Abraham, He was justified by faith, and he was justified by his works, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Well, what was that? Well, see, God gave Abraham a promise in Genesis, and he said, hey, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations, and out of your offspring is going to essentially become the hope of the world. And here Abraham was, Abraham and his wife, very old in age, He thought that his wife was barren and would never have children. And then God gave them that promise through their son, Isaac. And whenever Isaac was born, Isaac grew up to be an older man. And God said, hey, I want you to take the promise and I want you to lay that on the altar. I want you to go and literally tie your son up and put him on the altar. And I want you to sacrifice him as worship to me. It was a faith and trust in God that ended up producing an obedience that ended up, in return, giving him more faith. And now, if you don't know how the story goes, God ended up intervening, he was testing Abraham. Um, and, and it literally got to the point where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, and God said, no, 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 um, you know, you've, you've been obedient. Your son, your son is saved, right? And so if you don't know that story, I encourage you to go back and dive into it, because it's a fascinating story about the promise of God and the trust of God. But I want to kind of break it down in a very practical sense with something that's been very relevant in my life recently. And, and for um, City Church, it's been extremely relevant. And, and, and our church doesn't even know this now. So this is the first time I'm even saying this um, for up here in Albany and, and for everyone at Res. Uh, now that we are partners, I think it's good just so you guys can can know about this and hear about this story. Um, but a few weeks ago, we kept going back and forth, back and forth with, with the seller of the building that we're trying to get into. And, and I'm talking about like Um, we kept countering him. And what was going on is there was a major asbestos problem. And and at first he was going to do something. And then he wasn't going to do something. And then he was going to do something. And he wasn't going to do something. And it went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Meanwhile, uh, City Church had gone to House Church. I'm all stressed out like um, and, and I remember we just called like a day of fasting and prayer, and, and uh, the city church staff fasted and prayed, the res church staff fasted and prays, uh, prayed, Pastor Joyce and Bishop, they got on the phone, they just started calling people, um, and in the middle of all of that going on, God started sending me all of these encouragements through other people, through other people that had no idea what was going on. And and really what was happening is we were going to get hit with a $25,000 to $40,000 additional bill for the asbestos if we didn't do something. And so through all these encouragements, I'm sitting here, I'm standing in faith, and I'm believing, God, you're going to do something. You're going to move the mountains, such and such. And then Wednesday came. Wednesday came the day before we had to either decide to move forward per our contract or to cancel the contract and to walk away. And our elders met, and our staff met, and we prayed. I reached out to Bishop Joe. I reached out to a few other people, and, and I just got some wisdom. And it really came down to, okay, God, this is what we thought was the promise. This is what we thought was, was what it was that you had for us as a community, what we were moving into in a new season, what, what you were doing. And so we literally took the building and our attorney ended up issuing a termination of the contract because the seller refused to budge on the price. And we walked away from the deal. That afternoon, uh, my wife, um, Christy, and our kids, we, we met up with Marissa and, and uh, Christy's sister, Laurie, and we went to uh, the, one of the walk-in trails. And, and as we were walking, about two and a half hours later, I got a phone call. And the phone call was the seller has basically come back and said, hey, that um, counter offer that you guys proposed two weeks ago, that, that the seller said no to, he's willing to accept that now. And so my response was like, okay, that's great news, we have to pray about it. And that's what we did. We prayed about it. Should we move forward? And we met as an elder board. Well, in the middle of all of that happening, our mortgage company contacted us and said, hey, we want to increase your mortgage loan by $50,000 and we want to decrease your down payment by almost $30,000, leaving us essentially with a, a fund of, of 80000 additional dollars. Plus, we're paying less for the building. I genuinely believe... Now, to catch you back up, the good news, we're back in contract. We're about to close on the building. All things are going great. But I really believe that if we would not have been like Abraham and been willing to walk away, to sacrifice the promise in faith, then I don't think we would have seen that miracle take place. I don't think that we would have seen that. And I'm telling you, the, the emotional and spiritual toll on my body of learning to trust God, of learning to have to take my faith and to put it into action, not just a bunch of talk up here, but to literally walk this thing out, it did something inside of me. And that's what James is inviting us to right here. Is he's inviting us to experience life, a life full of faith that ends up producing action, that ends up producing works that will end up ultimately rebuilding or gaining a greater trust and understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is. And in light of what Jesus has done, man, shouldn't we take this gospel message and spread it out to those people around us? He, he then shifts to talking about Rahab. And, and Rahab is a promiscuous woman. I'll, I'll leave it at that in case there's children in the room. But she's a promiscuous woman woman, a woman of the night. And God uses her because she acted in faith and she produced works to be able to hide the spies and to help them escape Jericho. And let me just say this. No woman, whenever they're five or seven or 10 years old, wakes up and says, I want to be a promiscuous woman whenever I grow up. But this woman experienced abuse, experienced neglect, And who knows what else that led her to this point. And it was accounted to her for righteousness because of her faith and her works. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew, she is now in the lineage of Jesus Christ. How beautiful is that? Faith producing works. And then he ends this passage. He ends this phrase, this thought with this right here in verse 26. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So if the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Look, a few weeks ago, we, we were in the series seven. Actually, we just wrapped up the series seven And we talked about um, the statement that Jesus made in John chapter 15, I am the vine. Anyone who abides in me, I will abide in them, right? And we we really push this idea of us abiding in the vine, abiding in the vine. Have you ever been to a forest or have you ever seen maybe in your own garden or in, in trees around how you can see all of these living trees and then you can also see this, Dead tree that is big and massive, and you would think would still be alive. Like you even go up to the tree and you hit on it, and it feels like real wood, but you look at it, and there's no leaves. It's barren. It isn't producing any new buds in the springtime. And then you wait another year and say, Is it going to do anything? And it doesn't do anything. And then you wait another year, and what eventually happened? That tree, that tree ended up losing the source of life. The roots, for whatever reason, got infected, and because the roots were infected, it ended up not producing life at the top of the tree that ended up producing leaves or fruit that we would see. I think many times that's where we are in our life. Is we look like a Christian, we act like a Christian. We've got the right things to say as a Christian. We know all the right catchphrases to say. But really, we're just dead. And there's no life that's coming out of us because we are not allowing our roots to get grounded in the truth and in the love and in the work and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Love drives discipline. Love drives discipline. The more you love somebody or the more you love something, the more it will drive you to be more disciplined. A few quick examples. If you love your body and you want to be in shape, you're going to go to the gym and you're going to be disciplined with what you eat and you're going to do everything you can to get your six-pack and your, your beach body or whatever it is that you're looking for, right? Love drives discipline. In marriages, I don't do stuff in order for my wife to love me. Because of my love, I do stuff to make her life easier. I will wake up early with the kids sometimes, right? Um, I will wake up early with the kids. I will do the dishes. I know my wife does not like doing the dishes. And so my love drives me to be disciplined in making sure she never has to do the dishes. The same thing is true with our relationship with Christ. Love should drive us. Our love for Jesus, our love for his scripture, our love for what he's done should drive our daily disciplines which should manifest itself in spiritual fruit, in works, in our life. Faith without works is dead. Our faith is dead. And there we are, just a tree that's completely dead that might be planted in the middle of the forest, in the middle of a community, and we're so barren inside. You know, recently I was reading about um, Dietrich, Bonfar, uh, Bonfer, Dietrich Bonfer, who was a great theologian, a great theologian and, and just did a, a lot of great uh, work. He, he was from Poland, Germany area, uh, and during World War II, uh, well, actually before World War II in the 1920s, he came to the United States and he studied in New York um, and just got his theological degree. And at the, the, the height of World War II breaking out and they started taking all of these Jews and they were placing them in concentration camps. Um, and we know what happened to those concentration camps, right? Um, Dimitri ended up going out and, and said, you know what, I've, I've got to go raise up some pastors. And so he literally started in Poland an illegal seminary. And he just started getting people saved, discipling them, raising them up, giving them the resources they could to go out and to be pastors, to be parishioners or to be lay leaders in their towns and in their villages. And literally was producing so many people that didn't have the right theological degree, that didn't have all the education. It was a bunch of, as scripture says, ordinary men who had been with Jesus, right? Uneducated, Ordinary men. Uh, But he, Bonhoeffer, was so passionate about discipling people and raising up these pastors that he was doing everything he could to keep himself from the Gestapo while raising up these people and in the process trying to save the Jewish people from the concentration camp. One of his friends, uh, Neeson, ended up coming in and, and, and was like, man, you're raising up all of these these pastors, but why? They're not having a proper seminary education and they're not going through all the rigorous training and they can't quote all 66 books of the Bible. And, and uh, Bonhoeffer said, you know what, Neeson, come with me. And, and they got into this little rowboat and they started rowing up this, this small river, not too far from where his illegal seminary was. And they got to the other side of the river. He ends up climbing up the cliff and at the top of the cliff, he looked out and he saw what was a Nazi training ground where they were training hundreds of thousands of soldiers, getting them ready to go sent into war to kill the Jewish people, to try to take over during the third Reich. And then he looked at his friend Nissen and he said, you know what? This pointing at where his seminary was has got to be stronger than that over there this has to be stronger than that. The gospel has to be stronger than what our world may be putting on us. Discipleship has got to be stronger than the culture that is around us. Christians have got to be stronger and act in faith, in a faith that produces works, and they have got to do it stronger than the world that is around us few years later, one week after Easter Sunday, after he had been arrested, put into a concentration camp, he ended up waking up April 8th, 1945, having a sunrise service. And at that point, the German army came in and they hung him as well as seven other prisoners. And he said, this is the end of me, but this is the beginning of living. Faith without works is dead. In light of what God has done, in light of the gospel that is here for us, in light of the transformation that we have experienced, let's get to work. Let's put our faith in action. Let's make disciples. Let's tell people about Jesus. Let's get plugged into gospel community. Let's not give up. And let's let it be that this right here is going to be stronger than everything else around us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for everyone who is um, just gathered in their homes right now, watching and listening. Uh, God, I thank you for our churches, God, for um, City Church in Albany, for Res Church in Brooklyn, and Res Church in Staten Island. And Lord, I just ask that you do a deep, deep work in our heart, God, a deep work in our heart, Father, that our faith will end up producing works, God. Father, we give you praise, and I thank you. Father, I thank you that your gospel will prevail and will be stronger than anything that may be thrown at us. In Jesus' name, amen.